All right, guys, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast today. I am flying solo to do somewhat of a Monday Minute Q&A episode, but in particular for some questions that have come through for me directly, uh, and I guess I should say for new listeners who don't know my voice automatically, this is Mark, um, questions that have come through for me directly or about particular gear that I use, um, basically things for me. And I've answered a lot of these questions directly via email when they come in, but there's several questions or topics that kind of continually to come up. Um, and I thought it would be good to answer those more publicly on the podcast. Um, so both more people hear it. Um, and also so that there's a resource to point people to when these questions do come up. And so I'm just going to fly solo, um, kind of unscripted, just hit a few different points of questions that have come up um, continually. So the first one is why I built a 7 SOM, which is a short action Ultramag, over other 7mm cartridges such as the 28 Nosler or the 280 Ackley Improved or the 7mm Rim Mag. So just for context, I built a 7 SOM about a year and a half ago. I already had a 6.5, I already had a 30 caliber, I wanted a 7 millimeter. And in particular, I chose the 7 SOM because I, I didn't want a long action, I didn't want a belted magnum, and I didn't want, I wanted something efficient, not necessarily the most powerful, right? So something like the 28 Nosler is an absolute hammer. Um, but you're burning a ton of powder to get the performance. You're going to have things like shorter barrel life, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I wasn't interested in a hot rod such as the 28 Nosler. I didn't want a long action or a belted Magnum. Um, so I didn't go seven millimeter rim mag. I do think it's a great cartridge. It just wasn't what I was looking for in this build. Or a 280 Ackley Improved, which is, I think, a fantastic option is great but again I, I didn't basically want a long action so i was i was really considering something like a seven psalm um a seven winchester short mag etc side note though i do think that a seven millimeter rim mag or a 280 ackley improved has to be like top 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 of my recommendation for most hunters looking for that quote-unquote do-it-all rifle um, and when most of the time when guys say do it all, they don't truly mean everything, meaning they're not hunting Cape Buffalo, they're not hunting brown bear, etc. They're thinking more, hey, I want to hunt elk, deer, bear, antelope, maybe go to Alaska, do caribou, etc., etc. So for kind of the, the standard do it all big game rifle, um, a 280 Ackley Improved or a 7mm rim bag, um, those would honestly probably be my top two choices. But for me, the 7 SOM gave me that type of performance um, on a shorter action, something I could build a bit lighter, something that does require you to reload. You're not going to find 7 SOM factory ammunition, which is going to be a barrier for a lot of guys, but I was already super into reloading and kind of wanted to start with more of a niche cartridge and do some of that development. And I will say that the process of development, load development, reloading with the 7 SOM has been incredibly, incredibly easy. 
um, as long as you can find the components, which is a struggle for pretty much anything these days. But certainly the 7 Psalm, even since in the last couple of years since I've uh, sourced my components, such as brass, it has become harder and harder to find. So I love my 7 Psalm. I'd build another one in a heartbeat. In fact, I may. Um, but I'll have more to come on my exact rifle, um, what it is. I'll put together a video of it. But real quick, it's a 22-inch 7 Psalm um, proof barrel, uh, Defiance Anti-X Action, running a Night Force in excess, 2.5 to 10 scope on it. Um, just recently moved from a traditional stock to an XLR chassis. Um, more to come on that, but that's why I chose the 7 Psalm specifically over those other 7mm options I mentioned. I'm really looking forward to taking that 7 Psalm on my mountain goat hunt this fall. Um, and speaking of mountain goats, we had a question come in about that. So if you live in a state where there are no mountain goats and you really want to hunt goats, What's the best thing to do? What do you recommend someone do? Thanks. All right. So great question. I actually wrote an article um, about where you can hunt mountain goats um, and highlighted particularly the opportunities that exist for non-residents. And it basically boils down to either getting lucky or paying money. Um, you know, something like British Columbia or Alaska, you can easily hunt as a non-resident easy meaning you can get a tag it's just going to cost you in both both of those scenarios you will have to go guided and so you need thousands of dollars to make that happen other opportunities exist in the lower 48 of the u.s as non-residents um, wyoming montana idaho colorado but all of those opportunities are going to be difficult to draw. Some of those opportunities include preference points, some do not. So Idaho, for example, um, there's no preference point or bonus point system you can put in for a mountain goat tag every year. As a non-resident, it's truly luck of the draw uh, and the odds are low, but it's a pretty easy process. You do have to pay, um, excuse me, you do have to pay that tag free up front, which I believe runs about $2,400. So you front that money um, to enter and then you get a refund um, if most likely you don't draw, but you could draw. So it's something that I do every year is enter that um, drawing for mountain goat tags in Idaho. Um, Colorado, for example, is uh, a unique system um, just to highlight one of the other states you, they do have a point system, but you basically have to get three points. So you have to apply for three years and pay for a point, which is going to cost you about $100. But those first three years, you're basically building eligibility. You're not actually entered into the draw. Um, so you're going to have three years and 300 bucks uh, before you're actually entered. But at that point, uh, you can continue to apply and continue to build extended points. Um, so yeah, look into that, check out the article. I will leave a link in the show description. Um, but there are opportunities. There's no easy or cheap opportunity. Um, but in my opinion, if you really want to hunt mountain goats, then there are strategies to consider as a non-resident. 
All right, this next question came through. It's kind of bouncing back to rifles. Uh, and this gentleman said, I'm a left-handed shooter. I am as well. That's why he's <laughs> emailing me. He says, I've been hunting archery only, but want to dive into rifle hunting this year. I've been doing a lot of research and it seems left-handed rifles are pretty hard to come by. I'm looking for a good rifle that's light enough to take on a backpack hunt. The SIG cross with a foldable chassis is very appealing to me, but it isn't, sorry, but it is right-handed only. They do not have a left-handed option. Uh, as a left-handed shooter, would it be wise to stay away from a right-handed gun or can you hunt without can you hunt? Sorry, this question I should have edited. Can you hunt with a right-handed gun without a problem in the field? This gentleman go, went on to say, I also thought about buying a left-handed Tika and putting it in an XLR chassis, but that would be stretching my budget a little bit. What would you do? All right, so um, all the above, I have had, or do have still, a SIG Cross, I have a Tika, I have an XLR chassis, I have left and right-handed bolt actions. Um, basically, I grew up hunting and shooting with right-handed bolt actions as a left-handed shooter, uh, probably until six years ago, um, and I made it work, but once I did shoot a left-handed bolt action, I kind of realized what I was missing. And now I don't foresee really um, shooting with something that's right-handed if I don't have to. So really, you know, if you're at the range, like you're shooting on a bench, whatever, no big deal. Shooting a right-handed bolt action from a left-handed position is not a problem. What becomes an issue is in hunting and in real world scenarios and shooting positions, being able to shoot and then reload effectively while ideally staying in the scope and keeping your rifle supported, etc. That's when things get really difficult. Um, and so being able to, you know, if you're shooting off of like shooting sticks, for example, or shooting off of a pack or what have you, you want to be able to keep the rifle on target or nearly on target reload and not lose your shooting position for follow-up shots, which if you're left-handed and shooting a right-handed rifle becomes incredibly difficult to do. So I would recommend uh, a left-handed bolt action, even though it's going to be harder to find it and you have fewer options. Even though there's fewer options, you have some great options. And so he mentioned a Tika. That would be my top choice um, for most folks on a you know normal budget is build a Tika. Start with a factory Tika. I've done that. Um, I'll leave links in the show description to the Tika that I built. And you don't have to, you know, customize a Tika like I did. You can shoot a factory Tika uh, and go hunt anywhere and pretty much do darn near anything. So it's a great choice. It's my top choice for factory rifles in general, really, for most guys, but in them particular for left-handed guys. If a SIG cross came in left-handed, that would be an awesome choice as well. Um, you know, this guy mentioned getting a Tika and dropping it in an XLR chassis. Um, that's a great option. It does stretch the budget. Those are not inexpensive chassis. And so you could either hunt with the factory Tika stock or do more of a traditional stock upgrade um, on your Tika for, um, 
for cheaper than an XLR chassis. I put my Tika in a Mesa Precision Altitude stock and really liked it. Um, having some experience with the XLR chassis right now, I really do like it as well. The folder gives you some great benefits, but it does uh, come at a cost. So basically long story short, go left-handed and get a Tika. All right, this next one came through about my experience with my Catabatic quilt. Hi, Mark. This is George from Pennsylvania. I have a question for you on your Catabatic 22-degree quilt, I believe, that you have. My question is, is how accurate do you feel that the temperature ratings are? How low do you think you can get with different clothing, etc.? Just wanted to kind of get your opinion on how you like it and if it was a, a good rating temperature for you. Thanks. All right. So the Catabatic quilts... Um... I wish I was paid or compensated or had some sort of benefit from recommending them all the time. I don't, but it is truly my favorite piece of my backpacking gear. Um, I, if my catabatic quilt disappeared, got burned in a fire, was stolen, I would go buy the exact same thing and pay a full price and not even question um, looking for some sort of alternative. I, I love it. And I have the 22 degree ALSEC, um, A-L-S-E-K from Catabatic. I find that their temperature ratings are extremely accurate, if not conservative. Um, that hasn't been my experience with other sleeping bags or quilts in the past. Many tend to be optimistic, meaning if it's a 22 degree quilt, yes, it'll keep you alive at 22 degrees. No, you're not going to be comfortable. I truly think the catabatic is going to keep you comfortable at that temperature. And as he asked about, I've taken it well below that. Um, last year's death hike for example in the frank church you know we the second night we were uh, sleeping on snow um, and the snowshoe experience we had and according to a couple guys with some sort of temperature thermometer type device i don't know how accurate they were but basically it got down to for sure single digits um close to zero like we were getting readings of two degrees that night i was plenty cozy in my catabatic quilts with uh my jacket on I think I was wearing my, if I remember right, I was wearing my pants I hiked in, but not my puffy pants, but I honestly don't recall. But I have used the Catabatic quilts um, in probably half a dozen states, different hunts, seasons, etc. In warmer weather, it's easy to ventilate being a quilt design that's, you can remain fairly open. And then about Catabatic quilts in particular, one thing I do like is their attachment system makes it easy to really secure the quilt to your sleeping pad in a way that you eliminate uh, drafts, which obviously is going to be important in cold weather. So everything from their attachment system, their their baffle system, the quality of the down, etc. I do feel that catabatic quilts are extremely accurate slash conservative uh, in their temperature ratings and yeah, I just can't say enough good about them. So it'd be a great choice if you got the budget to get one. All right, quite a few questions while we're talking backpacking shelter sleep system have come through about a tent that I've been using the last couple of years from Gossamer Gear called The One. That's just what the tent is called, The One. Uh, and just for context for listeners, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a trekking pole supported tent. Um, Again, I've used this 
tons of hunts, trips, death hikes, casual camping, backcountry hunting, etc. Really, really like it. Uh, one of the questions that came through was basically about durability. This guy asked, has this hold held up well for you considering the very lightweight tendy material or have I moved on to using something else? It has been durable. Um, it is 10D in areas. It does use pretty ultralight zippers in areas, um, but both have proven to be uh, durable with, I would call it um, realistic use and care, meaning I'm not, I'm not treating anything gingerly, but I'm also realizing that I'm dealing with relatively light fabric and zippers to have a shelter that's this light yet this livable. Um, and so I have not had any issues um, with any shelter. I try and take basic precautions of clearing out the area I'm going to set up that shelter in. I have not been using a footprint with this tent at all. Um, so I'm just taking basic precautions to try and move sticks, debris, etc. Um, the zippers are really light, but they also... The shape of the zipper, like on the door, for example, has a nice sweeping curve to it. So there's not any really tight turns or pinch points or things like that. Um, so yeah, it's been durable over a lot of use. Another guy wrote in and said, um, again, this is in context of this tent in particular. He said, I tend to set up camp and then hunt the area for a few days before packing up and moving on. If you're using trekking poles for shelter support, do you tend to tear down camp every morning so that the poles can be taken with you while hunting? Also, given the limited space, where and how do you tend to protect your gear overnight if you are expecting bad weather? So this question about trekking, trekking poles and then leaving your tent to go hunt um, applies not only to this Gossamer gear, the one tent, but any trekking pole supported tent. And it's a great question. So there's honestly a few different um, approaches to this. If you have a trekking pole supported tent, you're not intending to pack up camp. You're intending to leave camp and go hunt for the day. Uh, basically, my answer is it depends. So if you're expecting bad weather, you do want to leave that shelter supported or take it down completely. But if you're expecting fairly mild weather, and by that I mean not a lot of precipitation or not a lot of high winds, there have been times I've just taken my poles out of the shelter um, and basically let the shelter remain staked down, but I'm just not supporting it vertically. And so I will slip my poles out of the shelter. The shelter then collapses on my sleeping bag, sleeping pad, whatever. Uh, but in mild weather, I have zero concerns about that. There's been times where I have wanted my trekking poles for the hunt or whatever we're doing that day, but also want to keep the shelter supported because there is maybe a chance of some decent winds or some precipitation, etc. And in those scenarios, it honestly hasn't been hard to find a stick that I literally just, I slip my pole out and then put a stick in its place. Again, this is temporary. Um, and that gives my, um, shelter some structure while still giving me access to my trekking poles, which works. But I will say that there's been a lot of times, most of the time, in fact, where I'm just mobile. And so I'm planning on picking up camp, breaking down my shelter, 
getting everything on my back and hunting with camp on my back. That's probably what I've done more than anything. And so it hasn't been as much of a concern on leaving my shelter behind and what do I do with it. So again, just to recap, I have pulled my poles, let the tent collapse in good weather. I've pulled my poles and used a stick or some sort of temporary support when there's a chance of bad weather. And more often than not, I do take everything down each morning because I'm intentionally assuming I'm going to be camped at a different place that night. This guy also asked about limited space with the gossamer gear. What am I doing to protect my gear overnight if expecting bad weather? So on this tent in particular, the um, it's non-symmetrical, meaning so it's a one-person tent. One side has a vestibule and the entry door. The other side does not have an entry door, nor does it have a full vestibule, but it does have kind of like a small overhang. So what that typically means for me is within the vestibule, which is the entry side, there is enough space for me to have my pack and my boots under the vestibule, still with some space where if it's the morning and I want to sit in the tent and cook, I have some space to cook, heat up coffee, etc. What gets tight is if you're trying to add in um, your weapon on top of your pack and boots in the vestibule. So the other side of the tent, which again isn't a full vestibule but has some coverage, I will typically uh, put my bow or rifle there depending on the hunt. It has some coverage from things like frost because it has a small overhang. It does not have full coverage for uh, significant wind or snow that could get blown in because it's it's pretty yeah the coverage is partial I'll put it that way so in very bad weather it is possible to kind of stack things in the vestibule um, the vestibule is not enormous but it's good sized um, again typically for me that's pack boots food for the morning the other side is weapon but I haven't had um, any major issues um, just even this last fall had some nights where I spent um, in this shelter with my gear with decent amounts of snow and totally doable, totally usable. So um, what's next? All right. So this guy, another gentleman wrote in about Gossamer gear, this shelter says he's looking at one person shelters. Um, he said in reading some of the reviews, folks complained about condensation. Have I had much trouble with condensation? Also, this gentleman is six foot four, and he's wondering if the length of the shelter will work for him. Um, he says, in particular, he's a side sleeper. Um, and also, did I compare this tent to Tarp Tent's Eon Lee, which is made from Dyneema and is around 16 ounces in weight, though it was a bit more expensive. All right, so several things in here. Condensation has not been a big issue. Um, keep in mind, there's always an asterisk for me with condensation because it greatly depends on where and how you pitch your shelter, what the conditions are, etc. And so in some conditions, condensation can be tough to avoid, period. But I would say that there's nothing in the design of the materials of the one shelter that makes it more prone to condensation. So you can ventilate uh, the tent 
the vestibule, the door, et cetera, you can open up, you can have it more closed, you can manage that way. There's also small um, mesh sections at the head and the foot end of the shelter, which can help um, as well. So I've experienced some minor condensation in areas where I've fully expected it. Um, but again, comparing this shelter to many other shelters I've used, there's nothing in the designer materials that makes it more prone to condensation. Um, will it work for him at six, four? So I am six foot two, almost six foot three. Um, it works well for me. The only times I've felt, you know, like I'm hitting the ends really are the times where I've just been forced to have non-ideal site locations so that they're sloping. Um, and I tend to slide because I'm set up on a slope. There's just been times where hunting with camp on my back, it's close to getting dark. The site selection is what it is. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. And yeah, there's been times where my feet have slid to the end, but that's more to do with site selection, not the overall size of the tent. If for this guy is considering true one person shelters, it's going to be a great choice and more roomy than a lot of other one person shelters. And that is both in length as well as one thing I really like about this shelter is that when you sit up, it uses two trekking poles for support and they're angled out. And so as you sit up, there's actually shoulder room where the tent walls are sloping away from you, not in towards you, um, which is incredibly valuable. So being a bigger guy, I can sit up and not only have good height, but I can also, you know, change my base layer, my top or something like that and move around and sit or read or eat or what have you and have good usable space with the slope of the walls. Um, he mentioned about comparing it to the tarp tent Ian Lee. Steve has that tent. So we've had them set up side by side. I've been in his. It is lighter. Uh, it is much more expensive and it is less usable space, both inside the tent and uh, from what I recall in the vestibule as well. I could be wrong on the vestibule part, but I recall that being tighter. Um, and so, yeah, this guy being a bigger guy, personally, I would go with the one from Gossamer Gear, not only because it's more usable space, but also because for the price, the weight savings aren't significant if you compare those two tents and the weight that you are carrying is massively made up for in usability for a guy your size. All right, shifting gears uh, to another gear piece that I've just gotten a ton of questions on is the Arc'teryx Atom LT. So this is a insulated jacket with synthetic, not natural down insulation that I've used quite a bit again in the last couple of years. Um, I'll just read this guy's question. And this is one of, again, many, but his summarize, his question summarizes a lot of the points that come up. He says, I was curious about the temp rating on that jacket. I currently use the first light on Compagre Puffy, but feel it's a little lacking in the warmth department. I'm looking for something warmer and have been eyeing the Arc'teryx Atom LT. What do you feel that the stationary temp rating of that jacket would be with appropriate base layers? I've also been looking at the Sitka Kelvin light jacket as well, if you have any experience with that one. All right, so 
the thing that stands out to me in his question in particular is he's talking about stationary temp rating and the Arcteryx Atom LT while being an insulated jacket is it's geared more towards a bit of an active insulation piece, not a stationary insulation piece. And this is where you really have to, anytime you're talking about like a down or synthetic or puffy insulated jacket, whatever you want to call it, there's such a spectrum of offerings that you can't just say, I'm going to compare this jacket to that jacket without thinking what was that jacket meant for uh, and how would I be using it? And so long story short, if, if I'm going on a hunt where my primary uh, style is stationary, meaning I'm sitting and glassing for much of the time, unless it's a mild hunt, the Arcteryx Atom LT would not be my first choice. I would be looking for something in particular uh, built with natural down if possible. There's some asterisk there and based on conditions, but in general, I find more warmth for weight and much better stationary warmth with natural down. So that said, the Arcteryx MLT has been warm for me, but one thing I really like about it, it is that it's warm yet manages some activity well. And so there's a couple of scenarios. One really good, I can, well, two good ones that come to mind, even from this past fall. Last fall, Steve and I on our rifle elk hunt in October, uh, I, th- I guess this would have been day two. So I had killed my bull on, um, yeah, I killed my bull on opening day. We camped out that night. We were still hunting for Steve. It's now the following morning. We were camped out kind of in a bottom, like a creek bottom that was cold and really cold when we woke up and we knew like, hey, we're just going to kind of climb up this ridge and sit in glass for a while, kind of for those first hours of the morning. It was really cold that morning. I generally don't hike in an insulation piece, but I was like, yeah, this isn't like, yes, we're going to climb. We're not going that far or for too long. Let's see how this jacket does. And so made the climb with that Arcteryx on and then immediately sat down and glassed for quite a while and was stationary for a while and kept the Arcteryx on. Then we decided to kind of move, get a different vantage point. So we hiked again, kind of like down a little finger, through a little cut, up a little ridge again, glassed again, etc. And so we spent, you know, the first several hours of the day with good stretches of stationary uh, glassing and some quick but steep hikes. And in those colder conditions their Arcteryx Adam LT performed perfect it was kept me warm in the stationary and then I didn't like quickly or immediately overheat as soon as I started moving which has been my experience with a lot of other down insulated pieces Um, so just for example the I do believe that the shell fabrics breathe well in the Adam LT but also it's body mapped and so under the arms and honestly all down the sides of your torso is non-insulated and has a kind of stretchy much more breathable material and so again it's built with 
some breathability, some activeness in mind, even though it has kept me warm on some stationary hunts. Um, if I were to try to do that exact same effort with an incredibly warm down jacket, I would have overheated on the movements. And then because of my over, because I overheated and then was sweating internally as I sat down for the stationary portions, I would have been more prone to get cold because I'm now sweating. So I would have just basically had to have done more active management of taking layers on and off. Whereas in these conditions, I was able to use the Arcteryx Atom LT without as without it being as sensitive. Um, I'll put it that way. So that's one example. Another example is uh, this past fall, our hunt in Kodiak. Um, the last day it was, I think, 17 degrees with mostly sustained winds around 15 miles an hour, gusting well above that. And we did a very slow, like still hunt um, in those conditions. And so it's cold, it's windy. You're not fully stationary, but you're also not even close to exerting at the level of high intensity or sweat. I mean, we were truly still hunting through these big snow drifts and stuff. It was, this jacket was perfect for that. It was great. So um, those are just two examples of the strength of it. If I'm like saying I'm going to go on a November rifle mule deer hunt in Montana where it's mostly stationary glassing, it's not my first choice. But for the things I just described, it's a fantastic choice. Comparing it to the Uncompagre, um, I feel like it's probably probably as warm. I honestly haven't worn an Uncompagre too much too recently. It's probably just as warm, but again, more breathable, um, and easier to move in. He mentioned the Sitka Kelvin light jacket. I'm assuming he's meaning the Sitka Kelvin light down and not like there's also a Sitka Kelvin arrow light, which are two different things. So when I hear Kelvin and light, I wonder which one he's talking about, but, um, yeah, both of those jackets, the Kelvin light and the Kelvin arrow light, I've actually recently started using just to test. Um, I don't have a bunch of conclusive evidence to say on those other than to say my initial impressions with the Sitka Kelvin light down jacket are awesome, both on fit and warmth. Um, I'm excited to use it and test it more. It's noisy. So it's not a, just keep that in mind. It's noisy. A lot of puppies are, but that one's definitely noisy. Um, it's probably the insulation piece I'm taking on my goat hunt this fall is that Sitka Kelvin light, but more to come. The other thing I'd say on the Arcteryx Adam LT and comparing it, um, is it is the LT, which in the Arcteryx world means light. And so there also is the Arcteryx Adam AR, which I think may mean all around. I'm not for sure, but anyway, it's, it's the warmer, heavier version as opposed to the LT. And so if he's thinking like, oh, I want an Atom, but maybe the LT is too light or not warm enough, there's also the Arcteryx Atom AR, which is going to be warmer um, at the expense of also some extra weight. All right, guys. Um, yeah, that's it. There's some other things I may get into for the future, and then obviously a lot more to come on future Monday Minute episodes with Steve. 
But hopefully some of those questions uh, were helpful to you. It's honestly uh, a little bit awkward for me to do these these shows solo because one of my favorite things about the podcast truly is like listening to other people and asking questions and kind of trying to get out of the way. So um, hopefully me rambling wasn't as bad for you as it was for me, but hopefully this was also helpful if you were considering any of those items I discussed. As always, guys, you can send us an email to podcast at exomountgear.com with any questions or leave us an audio message with your question, which is even more preferred, and we'll answer that on a future episode as well. And to do that, just look for the link that says leave a message in the show description. Thank you guys for tuning in and have a great weekend.